0: Welcome to the Vetfolio Podcast, brought to you in part by Elanco. We're pleased that you've decided to join us as we continue to explore the second part in our series on tick-borne diseases, New Disease Agents Mean Even Greater Risk, with our guest speaker, Dr. Susan Little. Please note, the information in this session is intended to provide you with practical and timely information to assist you as veterinary professionals. The views and opinions provided are those of the presenter and do not necessarily represent the views, opinions, or policies of Vetfolio and its sponsors. Now let's dive into this session with our guest speaker.
1: Welcome, everyone. I'm Susan Little, and in this podcast, the second of four in a four-part series, I'll review a few of the more recently described tick-borne disease agents that have been reported to infect people or pets in North America. This won't be a comprehensive review by any means, and that's for a couple reasons. One is that talking through all the tick-borne diseases known to medicine at present would take quite a while, longer than a reasonable podcast length. But the other reason I can't cover them all is that, honestly, we don't yet have a handle on all of the diverse infections transmitted by ticks. Suffice to say, there are more infections transmitted by ticks than we know about today. They all have in common the tick, and so if we focus on effective tick control, then we've come a long way towards protecting pets and their owners against an assortment of many different infections. It's just that we don't really have a feel for exactly what that assortment contains. So in this podcast, I'll go over the types of disease agents transmitted by ticks in a general sense. It's a pretty broad swath of organisms. And then I'll mention the more common ones that most veterinarians are familiar with, like Lyme disease and Rocky Mountain spotted fever, ehrlichiosis, babesiosis, and the like. And then I'll describe a few of the more recently discovered agents now known to be transmitted by ticks. And these new diseases often hit the news, and so clients may ask about them. They know that veterinarians work with tick in practice, and especially if we recommend routine tick control, So clients often turn to us as a source of informed, unbiased information on ticks and disease risk. Now, admittedly, as we go over the newly described agent, some of this may become a little esoteric, and that could appeal to your academic side or not, but stay with me. We'll get back to relevant by the end, and in the third and fourth sessions we'll cover some really useful information that can help you put some of this into practice and help us rethink practice protocols. And in fact, we'll wrap up this podcast with the discussion of strategies to combat tick-borne infections, including vaccination where possible, routine testing to allow early detection and treatment, and then most importantly, consistent use of tick control to limit ticks on pets and prevent as many infections as possible. So let's get started. It probably won't surprise many veterinarians that ticks transmit a wide variety of disease agents. There are the bacterial infections we're familiar with, like Lyme disease caused by Borrelia burgdorferi, or ehrlichiosis caused by Ehrlichia canis and some other agents, anaplasmosis caused by anaplasma phagocytophilum or sometimes anaplasma platys, and even Rocky Mountain spotted fever caused by Rickettsia rickettsii. Thankfully, all of these can be treated effectively with the antibiotic doxycycline So even if we aren't confident of the specific diagnosis, we may be able to effectively manage the infection and the disease in a given patient. But there's also protozoal agents transmitted by ticks that we see from time to time, things like Babesia species causing disease in dogs or cytosine felis, which causes a severe, often fatal infection in cats, and even hepatozoan, like hepatozoan americanum, which causes that chronic debilitating disease in dogs. But there's more than that. Ticks also transmit viral agents. And much more has been learned about tick-borne viral diseases in North America in recent years. And even nematodes can be transmitted by ticks. There's a subcutaneous phalarid transmitted to dogs by brown dog ticks in Europe that has also been reported from Latin America. So there really isn't much of a limit to the havoc that ticks can wreak on health, given the opportunity. And it isn't altogether surprising that so many different disease agents are transmitted by ticks when you consider their life history. By the time an adult tick feeds on a dog or a person, it's already fed on a different animal, once as a larvae and again as a nymph, bringing any pathogens that were acquired in those previous blood meals along for the ride. And then thanks to better detection methods and increased awareness about the diversity of potential pathogens that are cycling in nature, novel agents transmitted by ticks are fairly frequently identified. So if we think in terms of the organisms that we do know about, there's a number of examples of related organisms that also cycle in nature and can cause disease, but we've only recently become aware of them. For example, we know that Borrelia burgdorferi causes Lyme disease, but in 2013, researchers at Mayo Clinic discovered a second bacteria, now named Borrelia mayonii, that also causes Lyme disease in patients in the upper Midwest, including Minnesota, Wisconsin, and North Dakota. Disease is similar enough to consider both Lyme disease. It differs a little in that Borrelia mayonii is also associated with gastrointestinal signs in human patients, but both are considered agents of Lyme disease. What we don't know is the extent to which Borrelia mayonii infects or even causes disease in dogs. There's a lot of interest in that question. And then, of course, we need to understand better how vaccines may or may not protect against infection and what the diagnostic test would tell us about infection with that scant newly described agent. There's another species, Borrelia miyamotoi, that was described from human patients in the Northeastern U.S., also in 2013, and that organism is more closely related to relapsing fever Borrelia than Lyme disease Borrelia, so it's not considered another agent of Lyme disease. In fact, the disease caused by Borrelia miomoteri in people is different in that there usually isn't characteristic bullseye rash in most patients after the tick bite, but there are some other symptoms that indicate that clearly a bacterial infection and disease has transpired. Now, fortunately, all of these infections do respond to antibiotic treatment using doxycycline. And doxycycline is the preferred antibiotic for treating Borrelia infections. Borrelia will respond to beta-lactam antibiotics as well, but often when there's a Borrelia infection, there may be a co-infecting agent like a Rickettsia or Ehrlichia or Anaplasma, and those organisms really only respond to the tetracycline antibiotics, and so that's why doxycycline is considered treatment of choice. In the same way that new Borrelia species have been described, novel Ehrlichia have also been described in North America. Now, we've known about Ehrlichia canis, and even Ehrlichia chapiensis in humans and Ehrlichia ewingii in both dogs and humans for many years. But there's a new species, Ehrlichia muris-like agent, that was first identified from people in Minnesota and Wisconsin in 2009. It's since also been confirmed in dogs, infecting dogs, causing disease, and causing positive results on serologic assays for Ehrlichia. But there's several additional Ehrlichia species also under investigation, including what appear to be novel Ehrlichia species that have been found in horses, in cattle, and in wildlife species. And all of these appear to be unique agents. The Rickettsia genus is also very diverse. Rickettsia Rickettsii, the agent of Rocky Mountain spotted fever, is the primary concern of most veterinarians and physicians. But other organisms also infect dogs and people. In fact. Epidemiologic data collected to date suggests that most antibodies detected to Rickettsia species in people and dogs in the southern U.S., even when Rickettsia rickettsii is used as the antigen to detect the antibodies, most of those antibodies are actually generated by infection with an entirely different, unfortunately non-pathogenic, Rickettsia species, now named Rickettsia angliomatis. And it's not the pathogenic Rickettsia rickettsii in those people or in those dogs, this could be great news for two reasons. First, better outcomes for patients. They're infected with a mild or a non-pathogenic organism, then they won't develop the severe illness, Rocky Mountain spotted fever. But also, second reason this is great news is that by some experimental work, natural infection with the mild organism, the Rickettsia amblyomatis, seems to provide immunity against later infection with that horribly pathogenic Rickettsia rickettsii. So there's finally an upside to all the ticks and the tick bites that we see. Unfortunately, there's other rickettsia species that are also transmitted by ticks, and some of them, like rickettsia parkeri, do cause disease, although it's a milder disease than Rocky Mountain spotted fever. And to date, disease has really only been described in people, although infections with rickettsia parkeri are seen in dogs. So in terms of new age transmitted by ticks, we can take comfort in the fact that all the bacterial ones are responsive to doxycycline antibiotics. But what about those patients that don't respond to treatment? Well, I see lack of response as an indication to review the diagnostic workup and look for the other answers. Response is almost always seen within one to two days of starting the antibiotics, and if the patient's not improving, then a co-infection may be present. Co-infections are incredibly common with tick-borne infections, And so we always have to be on the lookout for things like protozoal agents and others that need a different treatment rather than doxycycline. And then, of course, it could be a different diagnosis altogether. So reviewing the diagnostic strategy and the conclusions drawn is really important when there's not a response to doxycycline. And interestingly, we also know that ticks transmit a number of different viral agents. Now, admittedly, we don't encounter tick-borne viruses much in our veterinary patients. And they haven't been shown to be a major issue for dogs in North America. But viruses transmitted by ticks have been increasingly shown to cause severe disease in people in the United States. The best known of these is probably Powassan virus, which is transmitted from deer ticks to humans in the northeastern and upper midwestern U.S. and results in a severe disease in people characterized by a fever and headache and memory loss and, in some cases, long-term neurologic problems. There's another virus more recently identified from ticks as causing disease in people, and that's heartland virus. It's thought to be transmitted by star ticks, and infection results in fever, fatigue, anorexia, and gastrointestinal distress. Many of these human patients were initially thought to have ehrlichiosis, but the diagnostic tests were not confirmatory for Ehrlichia infection, and the patients did not respond to doxycycline treatment. Most of the cases with heartland virus have been reported from areas where lungar ticks are really common, states like Missouri, Tennessee, Oklahoma, and so that's where we expect to see these more recently discovered viral infections. And there's a third virus that's thought to be transmitted by ticks that can also cause disease in people, and that's bourbon virus. There's only been a single case so far that's been well described, and again, disease was initially thought to be ehrlichiosis in that patient, but the patient did not respond the doxycycline antibiotic treatment. So what do we do about all these diseases? How can we protect patients from this onslaught of tick-borne infections, many of which have been described, which presents a challenge in diagnosing and understanding the infections? Well, prevention strategies take the form they always have, vaccination, routine testing and early treatment, and then tick control to prevent the infections. So, vaccination for sure, but vaccines are only available to protect dogs from Lyme disease, just one tick-borne infection. It's Only one of the infections that we know is coming at them from the ticks. And so, while vaccination of dogs against Lyme disease is critically important in areas where the disease is endemic or emerging, vaccination alone just isn't enough. Tick control is critical to protect pets and that tick control needs to be used consistently year-round to make sure tick feeding is limited to the extent possible. I'll talk more about tick control options in the next podcast, but the most important factor is that the tick control selected is used consistently year-round. There just isn't much of an off-season anymore. We used to think of ticks as a spring and summer problem, and they are definitely a spring and summer problem, but they're also a fall and winter problem, Thanks to deer ticks questing anytime it's above about 35, 40 degrees Fahrenheit, and then brown dog ticks living indoors anywhere there's dogs. By limiting the time of year when we protect pets from ticks, we're actually providing opportunities to feed on pets and transmit infections. They aren't considering our calendars or our protocols when choosing to become active. They're responding to climate cues, temperature, and humidity in the environment, and they won't just wait until April or stop in October because that's when we're expecting them to. So consistent tick control is key. And then there is routine testing and early treatment. And routine testing is so important. No tick control product is 100% effective throughout the entire application period. Whether it's a month or three months or eight months, some ticks are liable to get through and feed. Now, tick control definitely helps. It dramatically reduces the number of ticks that can successfully feed on our patients, but it isn't perfect. that's why in areas where Lyme disease is endemic or emerging, vaccination is still imperative, even if tick control is used consistently. And it's also why routine testing is an important part of wellness care, even when tick control is used consistently. Catching those infections early, when treatment is most likely to be effective, and hopefully before clinical signs have developed, is ideal. But that early detection can only be achieved with routine annual testing. Of the three strategies, Tick control is the one that will protect against the infections we know about, the ones we can also target with routine testing, and the one we can cover with vaccination. But tick control will also protect against all those other infections, the growing number of infections transmitted by ticks that continue to be described. We can't test for what we don't know is there, and we definitely can't vaccinate against it. But we can up our tick control game, and that makes all the difference. So in the next podcast, I'll go over some of the options in tick control currently available, namely topical and oral or systemic. And then I'll review the features of each that allow us to protect more patients from infection and, better yet, kill more ticks, ultimately reducing the numbers around the home that are available to bite pet and people. Thanks, everyone.
0: Thank you to our listeners for spending time with us. We hope that you found this information shared in this session useful. Thank you to our podcast sponsor, Elanco, for their support. Let us know what you thought about this session or other topics you'd like to hear in the future. You can connect with the Vetfolio team via email at support at vetfolio.com.